Read these stories and find out more about our books at blackandeducation.com. Charles Henry Langston was born in 1817 in Louisa County, Virginia. His mother's name was Lucy Langston, and his father's name was Ralph Qualls. Now, Ralph Qualls had served in the Revolutionary War, and he was a slave owner. He had a baby with Lucy Langston, and after the child was born, he freed both Lucy and their baby. The two later on had three additional children, Gideon, Charles Henry Langston, and John Mercer Langston. Charles Langston would grow up to become a well-known activist and an educator, a freedom fighter, and the eventual grandfather of the world-famous poet Langston Hughes. Charles's younger brother, John Mercer Langston, would go on to become the first black lawyer in Ohio, the first black person to be elected to the United States Congress from the state of Virginia, and one of the most famous black politicians in the 19th century. Although Charles's younger brother and his grandson would become much more famous than he was, if you ask me, he had a far more interesting life. In 1834, both Lucy Langston and Ralph Quarles died. In a very unusual move, Ralph Quarles left a good part of his estate to the three sons he had with Lucy Langston. So Charles, Gidding, and John all became heirs to a good portion of their father's estate. And they were eventually taken to live with a friend in their father, of their father's in Ohio. The year was 1834. And Oberlin College in Ohio had just been established the year before. It was one of the only colleges in the United States that happened to accept both African-Americans and women. Charles and his older brother Gideon thus became the first African-Americans to be admitted into Oberlin College. Charles and his brother Gideon soon became graduates. And armed with a college degree, Charles became an educator and an activist. He became the executive secretary of the Ohio State Anti-Slavery Society, and he joined a number of other organizations as well. But perhaps the most famous example of his activism took place in the year 1858 and in 1859. There, a young man named John Price, who was about 18 or 19 or 20 years old, had escaped from slavery and was hiding out in Oberlin, Ohio. He was staying with a man there who helped escape men and women when they came to that area of Ohio. Price was approached by a young white man in September of 1858. The man told Price that his father had work that could be done on his farm and that if Price wanted the extra money, he could come do some of that work. Not thinking this, that this was in any way a trick, John Price decided to go with the young man. Once they got in a wagon and were on the road, a group of slave catchers jumped out from the side of the roadway and captured John Price. They took Price to a town called Wellington, which was not far away, in order to transfer her eventually back into slavery. By chance, another man saw them on the road as they were on their way to Wellington, and he ran to Oberlin to alert everyone. He ran into shops and into businesses yelling, they got one of our men, they got one of our men. Almost immediately, men began to gather and to demand that something be done. They got together their guns and their rifles and some 500 men started out on the road toward Wellington. Among them and one of the leaders of this group was Charles Langston. When they got to Wellington, Charles and the others tried to negotiate with the authorities but the authorities simply would not let John Price go. When it became clear to the armed men that the negotiations had failed, many of them simply rushed the building. They pushed aside the guards and made their way through the hallways. No one inside the building really wanted to face an onslaught of about 500 armed men, so many of them simply just stood aside. The door to the room where Price was being held was unlocked from the inside, 
and Price was taken back to Oberlin without one shot being fired. The people of Oberlin celebrated as hundreds of men came back with Price in a wagon. The event, of course, drew national attention, and authorities came into town and arrested dozens of men whom they believed were involved in the rescue, and Charles Langston was among them. After much back and forth between the supporters of anti-slavery causes and both sides of the issue, almost all the rescuers who were, were eventually not taken to trial, with the exception of Charles Langston and Simeon Bushnell. Now, Simeon Bushnell was tried first, and he was convicted and sentenced to 60 days in prison, and Charles Langston would be tried next. It was 1859, and while all this was going on, John Brown came to Ohio. He was there to visit his son, who lived in Ohio, and he wanted to find additional men who might join him in his plan to raid the arsenal at Harper's Ferry later on that year. When Brown got to Cleveland, the town was abuzz with the news of the trials of the Oberlin rescuers. John Brown actually visited Charles Langston while he was in jail and reportedly helped to sell some of his livestock. John Brown, as we mentioned, wanted to find men to help him in his upcoming raid, and he sent his son out to find out if there were anybody, was anybody who might be interested in it. Brown's son went to John Langston, Charles's younger brother, and asked him if there were any men whom he thought might be willing to join them. Now, John Langston told him that two men might just be willing to go. They were Lewis Sheridan Leary and John Copeland Jr., and they both actually did end up going. Lewis Sheridan Leary had a wife named Mary Patterson, and they had a six-month-old daughter. Leary left behind his wife and his daughter and went to Harper's Ferry with John Brown. Leary would be shot in the stomach and die as a result of the raid, and Mary Patterson would become a widow. Mary Patterson would later on go on to marry Charles Langston, and she would become the grandmother of Langston Hughes. Now, getting back to the 1859 trial of Charles Langston, Charles Langston, as we have mentioned, was on trial for participating in the Oberlin rescue. He was tried and convicted. At his sentencing, the judge asked him if there was anything he had to say before he was sentenced. Charles Langston delivered such an impassioned speech that the attendees erupted in applause after he was finished. The judge gave Charles a lighter sentence of 20 days in jail. Firmly committed to working against the institution of slavery, Charles Langston decided to move to Livingworth, Kansas during the Civil War. Now, Livingworth, Kansas is right across the border from Missouri, and during the Civil War, thousands of African Americans left their places of enslavement and headed toward free areas of the country and toward Union encampments. Missouri was, of course, still a slave state, even though it did not secede from the Union, and of course, the Emancipation Proclamation did not apply to states that, did not, that didn't secede from the Union. Therefore, a stream of people who had previously been enslaved came across the border from Missouri to Kansas, and Charles Langston went out there to help. When Charles got to living with Kansas, he was immediately notified of the need of the, of the children of the newly freed men and women to be educated. He then started a school which educated about 150 such students. He ran the school along with others for three years before he transitioned fully to what would become his next area of contribution, and that was working for the voting rights of black people in Kansas. Charles Langston was a skilled orator, an effective organizer, and a natural leader. He joined many organizations within which he had a leadership role, and he strategized with other men along the lines of what should be the best way to secure the voting rights of black men. An example of this kind of organization took place during the Convention of Colored Citizens on October 17, 1866. There in that meeting, Charles Langston was selected as chairman of the executive committee, whose job it was to, and I quote, 
superintend the movement now making among us in this state to gain political equality. The committee shall employ agents to present our claims to the people, raise money to pay the expenses of the same, and to pay other expenses which in its judgment may be necessary. The committee shall hold meetings as often as may be deemed advisable and shall, as far as possible, organize auxiliary committees in each colored community. The executive committee shall also report its doings quarterly through the columns of some public journal. In addition to this charge for the executive committee, the men of this convention then outlined laws that they felt were discriminatory in the state of Kansas. They said, by putting the word white in the first section of the fifth article of the Constitution, colored men are denied the uses of the ballot. So our personal liberty, our civil rights, our property, and legal protection are all placed at the disposal of others. This is a sort of despotic class legislation of which we most bitterly complain. The Constitution makes the militia of your state consist only of white men. This order could not denies us the poor boon of uniting with you in repelling invasion or suppressing domestic violence. Being denied the elective franchise, we are excluded from the jury box. And hence, when we are accused of a crime, we are not tried by a jury of our political or legal equals. In asking you to remove these, dis these disabilities, we approach you in the name of God, who has created of one blood all nations of men. Now, this is just an example of the kind of organization and efforts that were put forth to fight to give black men the right to vote. Charles Langston worked specifically himself to bring about black suffrage in Kansas in the following ways by presenting along with others documents and evidence before the state's legislature, by debating and corresponding with state representatives and the governor, by working with others to include black male suffrage in the Republican Party's platform in 1866 in the state, but it was subsequently removed, and by playing a leadership role in several organizations that were working to bring about the right of black men to vote. He was tireless in his efforts, and although these changes never specifically came about in the state of Kansas until the nation's constitution was changed, Charles Langston did work right up into the passage of the 15th Amendment. As we've alluded to, Charles Langston married Mary Pattison. She was the widow of Lewis Sheridan Leary. They got married in around 1869 and had three children. Their first child was Nathaniel Turner Langston, whom they named after the famous revolutionary Nat Turner. Their second child was Caroline Mercer Langston. She became the mother of Langston Hughes. She would go on to marry James Hughes, and in 1902, they had Langston, on February 1st, 1902, to be exact. Langston Hughes grew up mainly with his grandmother, Mary, in Kansas until her death in 1915. Now, Charles Langston died in 1892, and although he never got to meet his famous grandson, Charles Langston lived a life dedicated to fighting for the rights of black people.